welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. This is an episode for the first half of December, an almanac episode in which I will survey many of the folk traditions that we see across December, looking specifically at some saints' days that fall in the period known in the Christian calendar as Advent, and the general shape of the celebrations at this time of year, which tend to focus around the winter solstice. Before I begin, I'd like to share that I'm going to be offering my first course again in the new year for the first time in a long time, and I will be opening registration for this course on December 6th at the early bird rate. So you will not hear from me again in the podcast until after the early bird rate has ended. That's why I'm letting you know right now. So you can sign up for my mailing list, which will be linked in the show notes, and that's where I'll send out all of the information about the course when registration opens. And this is a different kind of course than I've done before. I'm going to be doing this course with just audio and readings and prompts and no discussion classes, no video meetings, so that you can take the course with you wherever you go on your headphones. The topic of the course is something that's near and dear to my heart and is my academic background and training, or some of it. This is the roots of modern imperialism as they get solidified and developed in the Middle Ages in Europe, and specifically England is the approach that I take. The Middle Ages are, in a lot of ways, a major basis for all of the work that I do, but I don't often get the chance to go into medieval history, theology, doctrine, and popular culture in as much depth and specificity as I might like. And I hear from other people, too, that they would like to learn more about the specific medieval history that got us to where we are now, that really shaped our modern Western, secular and Christian mixed culture. And so the topics that I'll cover in that course briefly are understandings of gender and the nature of material reality as they relate to sanctity, that is like holiness and sainthood, cosmology, theology and doctrine, how ideas like divine hierarchy and good and evil got so embedded in our culture. Also, of course, the push for Christianization in medieval Europe forced conversions, destruction of sacred sites, as well as key topics like anti-Semitism and the persecution of Jews that went along with medieval Christianity and the concept of conversion that is so central to that field of thought and belief. So again, if you want the reduced early bird rate to access that course as it comes out, you'll want to sign up for my mailing list and keep an eye out for that on December 6th. On to December folklore and tradition. When I asked people in November, (laughs) looking ahead to December, what they like best about the culture, the folklore of this month, almost everybody gave me a variation on the same answer, which I found really informative and helped me shape this episode and to notice something about December that I hadn't really picked up on before with such clarity. What people told me they liked most about this season, this month, is coziness, is warm indoor spaces 
with decorated trees, decorations of all kinds, small twinkling lights, being in a sauna, being in a small warm place with other beings and looking at small, beautiful things. And it brought to mind a trip that I took to Naples in the spring of this year. I was walking through the city after seeing a museum, and I found myself in an alleyway. And this alleyway in particular is actually world famous, but I didn't know it existed. I just happened upon it. And this alleyway is made up of rows and rows of medieval workshops. So they have these beautiful arched doorways, and inside of them are countless old folks making miniatures. It's known as Christmas Alley because it is the place where reams of tiny handmade Christmas decorations are made, specifically the kind that would go into a miniature nativity scene, the likes of which you see all over Western Christianized nations at Christmas time and during Advent. And if you aren't familiar with a nativity scene or the manger or a creche, as it's sometimes called, this is a small barn-like structure in which dolls are placed. There would be three king figures, a woman, often in blue, symbolizing the Virgin Mary, and Joseph, a man, and a little bed of straw that remains empty until Christmas Day, and several animals, often a cow and a sheep and a donkey, depending on <laughs> where you are. So this is what you see multiple of in Christmas Alley. But Christmas Alley also doesn't just have nativity scenes or Christmas decorations. It also has these most remarkable, world-renowned village scenes as well. It's a place where you'll see miniatures of anything in the world, including political figures. And my little child's heart was set alight by being in this place. I was just full of wonder and delight at seeing all of these small things lit up from the inside, carefully arranged, done to scale. It's really hard to explain why the miniature holds such fascination, but we all know that it does. And I went to this place by accident, and it gave me such a lift and such excitement to think about the care and the craft that goes into something like this, something so precious and so handmade, and the skill to be able to create something realistic and small and beautiful being passed down from generation to generation in the same place in these buildings that have been standing since the Middle Ages. And just that, that heartfelt preciousness of such a skill and such a place really stayed with me. And it arose again when people were mentioning to me what they loved about December and about Christmas time, as we popularly call it, and as I tend to call it, having grown up with that expression. And I want to say that it's no accident that the miniature and Christmas and this sense of coziness all hang together at this time of year. And it's because the real earth-focused reason for this season the self-evident happening in the solar realm, the most obvious experience that we're going through in the Northern Hemisphere is the winter solstice. And heading toward the winter solstice is what we are up to in the first few weeks of December and what the concept of Advent originally derived from. 
And I can give lots of background information on the origins of Christmas time, Yule, and the pagan calendar, but I won't go into that in detail in this episode because I think a lot of that stuff is rather well known now, and I cover it in past episodes of this podcast. And I hope that if it is new to you to consider the solstice as the origin of this holiday, that you can go digging and finding all kinds of wonderful jewels about that fact. I'm going to assume that you know it. But what's happening in the first few weeks of December is that we are preparing for the moment that the sun is the least visible to us. And the sun is the most important celestial body, I would argue, in the sky and to life on Earth. It's what gives us life and it's what gives us hope. And it's why the Christian holiday of Christmas was placed at this time, because there were pagan celebrations that celebrated this time of year. Sometimes they happened on or near the solstice, other times a month or so later. It's not a universal thing that the solstice specifically would be celebrated by pagans, but it is the origin of all midwinter celebrations, I would say, to some degree. The fact that it is the coldest, darkest, most desperate time of year in terms of temperature and atmosphere. At the winter solstice, we are moved to travel further and further indoors to create our inner sanctuary in our home or other shelter with the other beings that we are spending our time with and that hopefully we love. We're gathering around a central fire which resembles the sun but on a smaller scale. And this is the time of year when the most stories and songs are created and still exist in our culture. This is why there are so many Christmas songs and why we start telling stories of Little Timmy and Bob Cratchit and the Nutcracker, which is also a miniature, I might add. We can picture an interior lit by small twinkling lights on greenery or a fire, a Yule log, burning, etc. And this is because the whole world, our human world, in our experience as beings without fur who don't hibernate, it shrinks down. It becomes smaller and our focus becomes contracted to just what is right in front of us for the moment. Just as the sun and our experience of the sun is condensed down to the smallest pearl of hope, We might just see it for an hour or a few a day, and our whole world shrinks with it. And there's a sense of the outside world and the darkness growing. But our imaginative world starts to focus on just the smallest things, on tiny decorations on the tree, which will represent whole stories or worlds of folklore. Our imaginative world opens up with these cues that we bring into our homes, the, the holly, the ivy, the tree, the Christmas decoration that reminds us of a beloved family member or ancestor or of a folktale that we might love. The sun is gestating before it's reborn. And so we turn our focus to matters of intimacy and domesticity, of closeness, of small things, of children. And this is why children are so focused on at this time of year, beyond the fact that, you know, they're indoors with us, so it's hard to ignore them. But the fact that they are small and they represent the sun and the year as it is about to be reborn. 
Our whole world shrinks at this time of year to the size of just this kitchen or this fireside or the shimmering rainbow halo around the evergreen tree. And if we're lucky and we're paying attention, we can allow ourselves to become enchanted by those small and beautiful things. And then in our minds and in our hearts, we can be players in the fantastical narratives that arise at this time of year that that pull us out beyond the small world that we're in, into matters that seem less than possible, but somehow more possible because of the shimmering darkness around us that gives us more imaginative space in a really counterintuitive way. Through smallness, we create bigness. And this is also demonstrated in the 12 days of Christmas, as they are now known, at the end of the month, which I'll be sharing about in a later podcast, where a lot of divination practices emerge because the 12 days of Christmas represent the 12 months of the year as they are to come. So this period of time as the sun is tiny is where we sort of pin our hopes to it so that as it grows again, so will all of the dreams that we've gestated and grown in this condensed solstice space. And I would invite you through the course of this month, as you're going around watching the folklore world turn and popular culture, just to keep your gaze open for imagery of the tiny opening into the fantastical and great, the preciousness of foliage in wintertime, of small animals or humans, (laughs) little children as a precious thing, just taking the time to even spend time with them in play, in that tiny little world that they live in, to join them there. And of course, light and how it grows over time and how much we desire and adore it. This month in Anglo-Saxon was known as before Yule or first Yule. And the word Yule may derive from wheel or may also share a root with the word jolly, with which we connect this season still. Many names across Europe for this moon refer to it as dark or snowy or the winter moon. In Scots Gaelic, it's du locht which comes from duve, meaning dark or black. The first major event that we see in this month in Germanic areas would be December 5th. And this isn't just Germanic areas, but I'm looking at Germanic examples mostly in this episode because I had to narrow down my focus somehow. December 5th is the eve of St. Nicholas's Day. And St. Nicholas wasn't always a saint associated with children, St. Nicholas being the root of Santa Claus. But he eventually came to be. He used to be a saint of seafarers, which is why there are a lot of churches dedicated to St. Nicholas on coastlines. As you may know, on December 5th and 6th, there are a lot of Krampus runs these days. This is an Austrian figure, the Krampus, a giant horned, demonic-looking creature who may also be accompanied by Perchten, who are similar figures associated with or named the same as Perchta, a winter goddess I'll be talking about in the next episode more. These monsters show up in the Alps and run down the main street and threaten children and often carry a sack so that they can throw children into them. 
In many other places, St. Nicholas himself will visit and leave small gifts for children, often in a boot that they've left out, especially if they leave hay or carrots, for his horse, which is the tradition which later developed into reindeer in some areas, especially North America. There's an interesting connection between these demonic figures who show up in various forms around Europe, especially Germanic areas. For example, we also have Swarte Piet in the Netherlands, who is a very controversial figure these days, but derives from the same background to a degree. These figures accompany St. Nicholas, or they had at some point in parades, and as a development of many masking and parading and house-visiting traditions that involved supernatural creatures and trolls involved often in the wild hunt, but sometimes connected with the harvest as well. They tend to be decorated in straw or furs, horns. This is like a huge body of knowledge that I've mentioned in lots of other episodes as well. But these demonic figures became paired with St. Nicholas in later Christian traditions in order to demonstrate that St. Nicholas, as a representation of Christianity around the Advent season, had dominance over these pagan traditions, which have remarkable sticking power culturally and are around to this day. St. Nicholas's connection with children has fostered many folk tales, many of which involve saving children from situations which imperil their innocence or their life. A popular story in the Netherlands is about how there were three daughters of one family who were impoverished and the family was going to sell them into sex work. And St. Nicholas came on St. Nicholas's Day and left three gold coins on the windowsill in order to help the family pay for the girls' dowries. This hymn, St. Nicholas, sung by Anuna, asks the saint to build us a wondrous place to dwell at this time of both birth and death to bring us safely to that dwelling place. This is St. Nicholas by Anuna. week later, December 13th, is the popular Saint's Day, St. Lucy's Day, or Santa Lucia. You may be familiar with the imagery from Sweden at this time of year, which features lots of young women with 
white dresses on, one of them wearing a wreath of candles on her head. St. Lucia was a third-century saint from Syracuse in Sicily. The legends associated with her include focus on light and vision. She was known to have been promised in marriage to a pagan and being a devout Christian virgin. She blinded herself in order to become unattractive and avoid marriage. She is also said to have brought food to Christians hiding from persecution in catacombs in Rome. And this is the explanation for why she wears candles on her head, because she wanted to leave her hands free to carry as much food as possible. And in the Swedish processions of this day, there are Lucy buns, which are beautiful yellow buns that are carried by the young women wearing candles on their heads. And it's pretty obvious the candles and the white dresses represent the return of light. And in fact, St. Lucy Day used to be called Lucy Long Night because it was on the winter solstice until the calendar reform of the 16th century. It no longer aligns with the natural solstice, but it is originally a solstice celebration. She was, before this remodeling in white dresses and Christianization, she was more of a troll-like figure who led the wild hunt, and she would have been in Sweden dressed in some places in ears of corn or straw, so she might be connected with the spirit of the grain that's embodied in those last sheaf traditions you may have heard of with corn dollies and related tales. That's something you should definitely look into if you're curious. And I'm sure that you'll be hearing about it again on this podcast come autumn. Her celebrations included feasting and dancing. And this Lucy bride figure dressed in her costume with blacking to disguise her face would have to dance with anyone who wanted to dance with her all night. This figure may have also been a man in costume because cross-dressing was also a common practice in this tradition. One account also says that a incredibly delicious meal would be eaten in the middle of the night, that people would be woken up in order to eat it, and the deliciousness of this meal would represent the bounty of the coming year in that sense of right now the micro represents the macro that is to come. I'll share a song now for Santa Lucia. This is one of the most popular melodies of the day's celebrations in Sweden, but with some less common lyrics. The song goes, Winter nights burn blue, the storm wind wails, the silver moon's sickle shines over us. Mighty is the power of the cold, souls and hearts it has put in chains, release them from pain. High in your golden hair candles drip, Stars of eternal spring radiantly burn. Give to our northern land the light of your saintly hand, Saint Lucia, Saint Lucia. This is Lucia Visa, sung by Emma Herdelin. Yeah. 
One of my favorite fairy tales that I always think of at this time of year, and I would strongly suggest that you read if you have the time and the interest, is called The Snow Queen. And it beautifully summarizes many of the folklore elements connected with December and with the winter solstice specifically. This is the story of Gerda and Kay, who were best friends and had a rose garden together in their adjoining houses. One day, Kay gets a shard of a mirror created by demons in his heart, which causes his perception to twist, and he no longer sees fellow humans as beautiful, and he can't see the rose garden as beautiful any longer. And as he's in this state of twisted vision, he hitches his sled to the sleigh of the Snow Queen, who creates the snow outside, and he is taken with her to her realms in the far north. His best friend Gerda, not daunted by his change in personality, follows him for many years across northern landscapes, traveling further and further into the heart of winter to find him. And along the way, she's invited into a series of cozy interiors, first a castle, then a robber's den, then the small wintry dwellings of a Finnish and a Lap woman, all who help her get further on her way to find Kay. Eventually she makes her way to the Snow Queen's palace, where Kay is sitting on the floor on a small lake, which the Snow Queen calls the mirror of reason, and he is tasked with assembling disparate shards of shattered ice to spell the word eternity. So there's a bit of a metaphor here going on that Kay has gotten disconnected from his sense of intimacy, human connection, and heart, and he is lost in abstraction and in thinking 
in strictly rational ways, which traps him in a palace of the mind, which is cold and outside of time. Gerda arrives with her heart full of love and manages to call him back to himself. And as they weep, the shard of the mirror from the beginning of the story melts out of his heart and the ice shards magically form together to spell eternity and he's freed once again. And at the end of the story, they return to their rose garden as grown-up humans. I bring up this story partly because it shows the value of human intimacy in these beautiful interior spaces, which we visit along the circle of time. And also, roses feature in this story in a way that represents love and regeneration and beauty in the midst of a big, cold world. Roses feature in Christmas folklore Often in a Christian context, there are several miracle stories about roses blooming on a winter branch, which represent the complex of the Virgin Mary, someone who is not considered fertile, giving birth to a baby, which is miraculous. But there is something really gorgeous, I think, beyond the Christian context about the idea of a rose at Christmas time, because the rose represents the blooming of something small and precious and delicate at a time of year most hostile to small, precious, and delicate things. There is no rose of such virtue is a 15th century Middle English and Latin hymn from the Trinity Carol Roll, sung here by the King's singers, and it describes how there is no rose comparable to the Virgin Mary who bore Jesus. But what I find really compelling about this song, specifically in the context of thinking about December as a miniature of the year and preciousness and smallness, is the last line in the song. For in this rose contained was heaven and earth in little space. It's describing how the heavens and the earth are rolled into one being, which is reborn in the smallest space of the year. Here it is. There is no rose of such virtue by the king's singers.
The rose is just one example of a turn to plant life in December and in the Yule season. There is a real focus on evergreens, on holly, ivy, fir, and other plants that can be brought indoors to deck the halls, so to speak. And these traditions originate in Saturnalia in Rome and in the Druidic traditions of Celtic and Gaelic areas. At the same time, I don't know if there has ever been a time where humans haven't enjoyed decorating their spaces with greenery, especially in a time when greenery is so hard to find. The Christmas tree is the central focus of modern Christmas celebrations in North America and Europe alike, and it is one of my favorite aspects. There's something about sitting in front of a Christmas tree and letting it enchant you that is extremely healthy, I think. And I am really glad that this tradition developed in the way that it did. When you decorate a plant with lights and with tiny symbols of stories and feelings, creatures and worlds, you're essentially building a shrine to that plant and with that plant to the preciousness of interior spaces, of small things, of plants, and of life in general, and its renewal. Alongside plants, with us in these interior spaces and our imaginative spaces at this time of year, are the animals. The animals who we would historically have been denning down with for warmth (laughs) at certain points and in certain regions. There is a great amount of opportunity to recognize animal life at this time of year. A lot of that love and attention has been focused specifically on the animals that were imagined to be in the manger in the legend of Jesus's birth. But many other animals are also part of the story at Christmas time now. We would have the reindeer, the yule buck, robins, geese, turkeys, horses. The love and care for animals is also a focus of the winter season in a really interesting way, and partly because we become so much more mutually dependent on animals at this time of year. They are close to us. They're not out at pasture. They are in our daily lives if we keep animals, and we tend to be indoors together. A curious devotion to animals that made its way into a Christmas carol that I recently discovered and am a little obsessed with now is the donkey. The donkey used to have a celebration all its own in France specifically, and this migrated to England in the 12th century. A donkey mass was sometimes celebrated on January 1st or January 14th, but the donkey in general being present at the manger potentially, but also carrying Joseph and Mary into Egypt in the legends surrounding the period after Jesus' birth. If you don't know, donkeys feature prominently in the Bible, being a animal that is originally from Africa and Asia, figure prominently in the Bible. They are there at key moments in the narrative of Jesus in the New Testament. And because of that, they appear in folklore of Christian areas as well, where donkeys also exist. People will use donkeys in folk remedies. I know in Ireland, there are traditions where the cross that you could see on a donkey's back, where its hairs part, would be the focus of 
cures for illnesses. A baby might be passed around and under a donkey three or nine times to rid them of a fever, or the hairs from the cross and the donkey's back might be consumed for healing. But this donkey mass that I mentioned originates in early medieval France. And this carol in Latin called Orientis Partibus, performed here by Trouvere medieval minstrels, praises the donkey for its many positive qualities. And I want to mention that this song is incredibly catchy. It's very danceable. And I hope that when you're listening to it, you will picture what actually happened as I was discovering this song, which is me and my partner dancing around in circles, shouting, hey, hey, Sir Donkey, hey, which is how this song translates. The lyrics in English read, From the east the donkey came, stout and strong as twenty men, ears like wings and eyes like flame, striding into Bethlehem. Hey, hey, Sir Donkey, hey. Faster than the deer he leapt, with his burden on his back, though all other creatures slept, still the ass kept his track. Hey, hey, Sir Donkey, hey. Still he draws his heavy load, fed on barley and rough hay, pulling on along the road. Donkey, pull our sins away. Hey, hey, Sir Donkey, hey. Wrap him now in cloth of gold. All rejoice who see him pass, mirth and habit young and old, on this feast day of the ass. Hey, hey, Sir Donkey, hey. That's a translation from Susan Cooper. And here at last is the song Orientis Partibus by Trouvere Medieval Minstrels. Hey, 
that's all I have for you this episode. The ways that you would like to apply the folklore of December, I'm sure will be very individual. And you will have many opportunities to participate in traditions at this time of year. My suggestions are simple. I hope that you approach this month with a commitment to nourishing yourself as a human being in a human body, preparing for a beautiful new beginning at the end of this solar year. So you can do this by cultivating rest, by dreaming, by sharing wonder in small things, staying warm, and being close with other animals, plants, and humans. You could create or visit a shrine dedicated to plant life and light, like a Christmas tree. Let yourself get creative about it. Get really into it and follow your instincts. Just be in your body and allow yourself to be in childlike wonder and see what comes out of that as opposed to thinking too much about what things look like to other people. Let yourself get small and focused in your perception and be really present with the magic of small and precious things. In general, I'd encourage you to train your focus on what is close to hand, on what's local, and how those small things are models and precursors for the larger scale. The micro leads to the macro is the basic rule of sympathetic magic, one of the most common folk magic types. I know one practice I'll be doing in the next few weeks is to meditate on something tiny, <laughs> just to take something small and beautiful in my hand and feel its preciousness, close my eyes and allow it to just open my mind and heart into larger, more fantastical worlds, just to let it take me wherever it wants to take me. I will be back mid-month with another episode for the second half of the month, focusing on the 12 days of Christmas. If you're curious about this upcoming audio course, just hop on my mailing list and you will hear about it as soon as the early bird offer opens. And I'm just going to give you a heads up. I think it's a pretty good deal. Please also visit the show notes to learn more about the artists whose songs you heard in this episode. And then you can buy tracks or albums directly from them so that they can continue to make such beautiful creations for our world. The one instrumental track you heard in this episode was Rex Tua Solo Minera by Truvere Medieval Minstrels. I'll leave you with a enchanting Advent song from Lithuania. This is one of the many that reference a nine-horned stag who arrives at solstice time bearing the sun back to the human world, but also connects with its title to the imagery of flowers in bloom. These sun-bearing stag songs, I want to mention, also have the same miniaturism theme that we're seeing all over this season that I'm seeing and sharing with you. In many of these stag songs, each horn of the stag will have a small scene represented on it, such as on the seventh horn, for example, the smith is forging the sun. In this song, it doesn't list many scenes, it just has one. And that scene is a parlor where music is playing and where young folks are dancing. And this is relevant to this song specifically because the chorus of this song 
repeats the word kaleda. And other Lithuanian Advent songs will also repeat the word lelumoi. And both of these songs have a bump, bump, bum beat that you might notice. They have three syllables. And I was told by a Lithuanian ethnomusicologist that I know that during the Advent season, this was a period of time where young women would gather together to do textile work before Christmas, and young men would go house to house and visit with them. This was a time for courtship, and so the young men and women would dance together to these Advent songs, which are most of them pagan in origin, and the dancing would go to the beat. It would have a, a three-part step at that point in the song, Kale da or Elelu Moi. So as you're listening to the song, you can imagine wonderful young folks dancing together in cozy interior spaces, dreaming of the sun's return on the horns of a stag. This is Kale du Ritu Saule Prajido, or The Sun Blooms on Christmas Morn, by the Lithuanian group Sedila. If you enjoy Fair Folk, please take the time to share it with someone you think would appreciate it and give it positive reviews wherever you review podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and welcome. If you're new here, take good care, and I'll talk to you very soon.